We're starting a new conversation, as Stephanie said, about gospel and work. The word gospel just means good news, so there needs to be some good news about work is kind of the premise. Uh, and so hopefully this will be an engaging conversation for the next month in asking some hard questions and also giving you some tangible resources to think about how God is present and how the good news is present in your workplace. So I want to start with a simple emotional question, all right? How do you feel on the average day about going to work? How do you feel about it? Not what do you think about it. How do you feel when you're going to work? If you work at home, if you're going to your, your office, or you're working with children in the home, how do you feel on the average day? Tired? Joyful? Pumped? Exhausted? Crabby, pre-coffee, post-coffee, how do you feel about it? Is work mostly a necessary evil or a chance to do good? Is it mostly a necessary evil in the world or is it mostly a chance to do good? So, I was going to have you raise your hands, but I realized that might be kind of embarrassing, so I'll just like, you know, raise your hand to yourself, sort of. If you find yourself in the, I feel like work is mostly a necessary evil category, you can raise your hand or internally raise your hand, whatever you prefer, okay? I feel like work is mostly a necessary evil. I looked for visual cues on people who think this way, and they weren't hard, hard to find on America's main form of communication, bumper stickers, right? So I've, I chose just two quick ones for you. Here's, here's one example of the mostly evil category. I had a life, but my job ate it. I don't even totally know what that means, but it sounds bad. And it's right over the gas tank, so the gas tank is eating the money you make at the job, I think. I don't know, totally, but it was bad. This next one's way worse and maybe slightly offensive. On my way to work, please kill me. You don't, right, you don't know whether to laugh or go, oh my gosh, that sounds terrible. Some people though, and when I googled this, the number of bumper stickers related to how much I hate work were like a billion to then the one I found of the people who like work, and all they could say was, I heart, I heart work. That was it. That was the only option. I didn't even grab any of them because they didn't make any sense. It was just, I heart work, or please kill me because I'm going to work. This sounds, this is a bad situation, right? But if you find yourself in the category where you're saying, I feel like work is mostly a necessary evil, here's some statements that maybe would inform that opinion that you have. Things like, you feel like you can't change anything about your work. You go to work day in and day out, and it feels like you have no control. You can't do anything about it. Maybe you, you feel like people tell you or you tell yourself, listen, don't get your hopes up about your work life because it's just going to be bad. And the sooner you accept that, the better you'll be it. Maybe you hear things like, uh, do what it takes to make a living. Work just is work. That's why they call it work. Do what you have to do, make a living, and accept that. Maybe you've heard people say things like, don't let yourself care too much about your work. 
We've had a huge shift in the last generation over people who were super loyal to their employers and to their work to now people on average having seven or eight jobs before they're 40. So don't care too much about your employer or about your work because you're probably going to change it every three years anyway. And, and finally, get out of it whatever you can. Right? Like, like a piece of fruit. Just get as much juice from that orange as you can and move on. And don't, don't worry about anything else. Don't think work is anything more than that. All of those statements fit into this. I feel like work is mostly a necessary evil and, and that's how I approach it. Okay? Now, if you fall into the category, uh, the second one I created, I feel like work is mostly a chance to do good, right? You can identify with that. Then maybe there's some other sort of self-talk or conversation that you're having with people. Things like, maybe you really believe that you can make a significant contribution through your work, to the world, to your life, to your neighbors. You probably think that the work you do actually matters. It's not pointless. You probably think that work is a chance. You might think that work is a chance to be part of what God is doing and that it's way more than just about making a living. That work is part of who God created you to be. So these are two very different stories, right? Either work is mostly a necessary evil or it's mostly a chance to do good. And it's never either one of those things. It's always both, right? So my question for you this morning as we start this conversation is what story about work are you mostly living in? What story about work are you hearing and are you living out? Is it mostly that you're just surviving it and getting by and it's a necessary evil? Or is it mostly an opportunity to be part of something much bigger than yourself that God has in mind from you? Which one dominates your thinking or somewhere in between? That's just for you to think about. The story of work can be understood dramatically differently depending on what your starting place is. And if you're looking to the scripture to inform work, where you start is hugely impossible, hugely important. So it seems like most people are starting in the culture with Work is a necessary evil or some form of that, at least if we're judging by the bumper sticker research. And you can find that perspective in the Bible. You can find the work is bad and cursed and evil perspective in the Bible. Here it is. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. God is talking to the serpent who's representing evil and Eve and Adam about their disobedience in Genesis chapter 3. And in verse 15, he speaks to Eve. He says, to the woman, he said, because you disobeyed me, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Are there any women in the Mill City Church who can testify to the painfulness of childbearing? You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> Thank you. There's a hundred kids in this, in this just, it's all been easy. With painful labor, you will give birth to children unless you're part of Mill City Church. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. 
all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust to dust you will return. This is not a positive view of work, right? And if you start in Genesis chapter 3 with your understanding of work, you're going to justify the bumper stickers that say, man, work is terrible, it's part of this curse, and there's really nothing you can do with it other than survive it. Tim Keller, in this very helpful book, if you're looking for a book to read this month, uh, Every Good Endeavor is about connecting your work to God's work in everyday life. Great book. He gives these categories that highlight this Genesis 3 starting place. He says, if we can only start with Genesis 3 and thinking about work, then we're going to un- come to understand that work is fruitless, pointless, and selfish. That sounds encouraging, right? Work is fruitless, pointless, and selfish. It's fruitless because we can envision, all of us can envision, far more things that we'd like to accomplish or we'd like to see happen than we have the ability or resources to accomplish. We can never do everything that we hope for or want to do. And we'll realize that and we'll start to think work is a necessary evil. Work is pointless because most of our work won't even last that long, right? You'll do some things, you'll accomplish some things, and in a few years or 20 years, or as my grandfather used to say, in 100 years no one will care. Eventually, the work that you do, it's going to be washed away. It's going to be replaced by somebody else. It's not going to last. And finally, work becomes selfish because then it just becomes about making a name for yourself or getting money for yourself or helping yourself to be more comfortable in some way, shape, or form in the life that you're living. Now, there's an alternative way to look at work. There's an alternative story to live out of that we find earlier in the, in the book of the Bible, Genesis Chapter 1, verse 28, says this. Talking about God making Adam Adam and putting him in the garden. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves around. Skipping down to chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there He put the man He had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care for it. And God commanded the man, you're free to eat any, any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a, a helper suitable to him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever... The man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. 
And while he was sleeping, he took one of his, the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. We have this alternative story in Genesis 1 that says God first created the world to be good. Before sin disrupted it, the world was good. And part of that good world was work. So maybe more important than anything else from today's message, I want you to take this home with you. Work was created to be good originally. It was. And God gave people responsibility. He said, name things. He said, rule over the land and subdue it. He said, cultivate and care for the earth. He said, go ahead and have partnership and, and um, expand the population of human beings on the earth. This story suggests to us that the work that God has in mind for us to do is inherently good. It's purposeful, it's unique, and it's others-focused to kind of create the opposite side of those first three categories, pointless, fruitless. Purposeful. The work that God has for us to do is purposeful. God is working through us to accomplish the things that God wants to accomplish. It's unique that every single person, Christian or not Christian, has been given gifts to be part of what God wants to accomplish in the world. That the uniqueness that God gives all of us is supposed to help us to know what our role is in the overall work that God's trying to accomplish. And finally, others focused that God created us to love our neighbor as ourself. And when we focus on other people, we're being part of God's work, and God's work lasts forever. These are totally different stories. So the question is, either is work either a curse or it's under a curse? And that may sound like semantics to you, but it's an entirely different perspective. Either work is a curse or it's under a curse. And I'm arguing this morning that work is under a curse that's not intended to influence it and affect it the way that a lot of us experience it. So our question for this month is, how does the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, influence the way that we think about work? So I want to give you a quick snapshot of how we've been talking about the gospel, and then I want to talk about two concrete examples of how the gospel story, starting in Genesis 1, can change the way we think about two particular industries, all right? They're going to be food service and hospitality, and did you know that if you put food service and hospitality together, the number of employees in food service and hospitality is tw almost twice as many as any other industry in the United States? Twice as many people work in food service and hospitality than any other industry. Amazing. Huge industry. We're going to talk about that one, and then we're going to talk about banking as two case studies. Do we have any bankers here today? They won't admit who they are. Okay. Christian Ann, you are not a banker, just in case you didn't know that. I know. I know there are bankers. I'm teasing them. Okay, so here's how we've been talking about the gospel in relation to Jesus Christ as the foundation of the gospel. Will you put my image up for me of that? Very simply, we were just been talking about the gospel in one sentence as the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And so just as a review, Jesus is Lord means that there's a gospel of Jesus that Jesus preached a gospel. It was his, his good news. And that good news had most, most often to do with the kingdom of God coming and changing the way we experience the world. He, he would say over and over again, repent 
and believe because the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is near. So when the kingdom of God is present and near, here's the kinds of things that happen. The poor are, uh, are cared for. The blind see. People who are imprisoned or enslaved are set free. People who are marginalized have a seat at the table. The, the last are first and the first are last. The kingdom of God breaks into our world in specific ways and we experience life the way God intended it. That's the gospel that Jesus preached over and over again. There's also a gospel about Jesus Christ. And that came through the work of the first church that was saying, listen, here's what's true about Jesus that's infinitely important to you because Jesus made a way for your relationship with God to be restored. And the gospel about Jesus includes the news of salvation that Christ died and was resurrected so that any wrong can be made right, that any sin can be forgiven, and any person can be reconnected to God through Christ. And so our relationship with God is spoken to through the gospel about Jesus. So Jesus is Lord and Savior, is part of this larger story from creation to, um, to the fall, to the redemption of the world through Jesus, to the eventual restoration of the world as Daniel read for us in our Moravian text this morning in Revelation. Eventually, all things will be made new because of who Jesus is and how God works through Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's how we've been talking about the Gospel for the last few months. So, what does this story have to tell or say about the work narrative that we're talking about? Two concrete examples, and then I'll finish up. What if you work in the food service industry? Can you raise your hand if you work in the food service industry? All right. Can you work if you work in the hospitality industry? Okay. If you come across people who work in the food service industry in your life. If you come across people who work in the hospitality industry in your life. Okay, that's everybody. As I said, it's the largest single employment group in the United States. Many of these employees have multiple jobs. Lots of them have small financial safety nets, according to the research that's been done. Many, uh, many people in the industry have struggles with various forms of drug and alcohol abuse. They often hear a story that says, you are in a low-level wage-earning job, and the work you do doesn't have that much value, and it could be done by just about anybody. Does that story make sense to you? You're in a low-wage-earning job, what you do doesn't have that much value, and we can replace you with somebody tomorrow. You hear this story often enough, and you start to believe that sort of thing about yourself. So I met a guy out in, um, in the Washington State area, Seattle and Spokane, where they started a whole ministry effort that was just aimed at the people who are in this workplace, and it aimed at inviting them to sit around a huge table, a literally a 48-person table, every eight weeks. They would invite people from the hospitality industry, from the food service industry, simply to tell their stories and share relationship about what it's like to try to live, live life in this way of, of working. And they've seen these just profound changes simply because the thing they do is they send these special invitations to people to say, you've been invited to sit at this 48-person table because you're really important to us and we want to hear your voice. And it's just been this amazing expansion of their ministry, just from that one simple thing that they're doing over and over and over again. How could the gospel about and of Jesus Christ reshape the way we think about food service industry and the hospitality industry? 
Here's a few, few ideas. What if we were able to say, as people who work in that industry or who, who frequent the industry, that offering hospitality is an essential part of God's story? Is offering hospitality an essential part of God's story? Is receiving hospitality an essential part of God's story? Yes. Jesus comes and receives hospitality from everyone. I'm coming to your house today for dinner, for lunch. I hope you have something already cooking. That was his regular practice. Do we think that it's possible that relationships that we all have flourish around these tables while we're eating? Do we think that people ever have a chance to travel and stay in a hotel or in another place where they're super excited about whatever it is they're there to do? Yes. Is serving other people the very heart of what's being done in this industry, uh, is that a key part of the Christian faith? Yes. Right? So as Christians, if we're, if we're purchasing things from people working in this industry, if you're there with your tip calculator... Maybe the most spiritual thing you're going to do this week is look at the tip calculator, okay? And you realize the backstory of the person who's serving me is that over and over again, they're being told a story that says, you don't make very much money, this job's not that hard, and we could replace you tomorrow. Wow, shouldn't we as Christians be taking the opportunities we have to communicate a different story to those people? Shouldn't we be going out of our way to say, I'm so grateful for the hospitality and the service that you offered to me today while I was here. I was in a conversation recently where I left a tip and the service was average and the person said, you left too big a, a tip for what we, what we received. And I go, oh, well, I wasn't really basing it on that. I was basing it on the idea that this person has a really important job and that they did a, a decent job, and that they, that they have a whole lifestyle that's telling them that this isn't really that valuable. And I wanted to take this moment to add one more dollar to my tip to make sure they knew that. We have these profound opportunities to say, there's a different story that guides our life as we act as Christians, whether we're employees or we're purchasing things, to help people say, this story that you hear doesn't define you, it doesn't define your work, it doesn't define your life, and that's good news in Jesus Christ. Through tips. Yes? No one cares. They're like, I'm just going with 15%. Example number two. Working in the banking industry. I used to work in the banking industry, so it's been a little while, but I know some about it, and I get to talk to lots of you who work in the banking industry. The banking industry is a foundational part of the economy in the United States. Yes, too big to fail, I've heard. Okay? It's often seen as an industry that's defined by greed and power. Yes? Okay? Many of the wealthiest people in the world have significant ties to banking. The story in the banking industry often centers on maximizing wealth for clients and the banks. Have I said anything heretical so far? Bankers. Okay. What if the story isn't about just maximizing profit for clients and banks? What if there's a different gospel story that could redefine how we think about people who work in the banking industry? Here's some ideas. What if we said giving people the access to funds 
to do the things that God created them to do is an essential part of, be, of, of how God helps people take risks in their lives. What if we said managing the cost of interest, which the Bible actually talks a lot about, what if we said managing the cost of interest and setting debt limits for people prevents them from being enslaved to debt, which is a huge problem we have? I will, I will put my cards on the table with this in, in, um, with respect to college students. I've met several college students who graduated with undergrad degrees, okay? With so much debt that they might as well have bought a house. And they're 22. So... For whoever I'm about to offend, I'm sorry. I, I think it's unjust for a society to be sending 22-year-olds into life where they're probably going to make thirty-five dollars or $40,000, at least at the beginning of their careers, with $150,000 worth of debt. I don't think that's what God wants for people. And the Bible actually says over and over again, the Bible had a whole system in the Old Testament for getting people out of debt, for forgiving debts in ridiculous ways. If you haven't learned about that, look up the Day of Jubilee on the internet and you'll find some really cool stuff about that. What if bankers are part of God's plan to help people stay in a spot that they can afford to have access to funds they need without being enslaved to debt because of their interest costs? That might be the thing that influences someone's life more than every other thing they learn or do, right? How many of you say that debt has a pretty normal day-to-day -day conversation with you? Right. So you have gospel bankers out there thinking through how the gospel story ought to reinterpret everything they do in their daily life and in the industry that they're influencing. They can have as much or bigger impact than the average preacher in your local congregation. What if they're about helping people who have more money than they need figure out how to invest that money wisely so it can be used for whatever purpose God has in mind for it. And they're having those conversations with people regularly. You see just these two pictures in these two industries. We could go through industry by industry by industry and say, how does the gospel story about the kingdom coming and Jesus saving us from ourselves for greater purposes influence the way we do law enforcement, the way we do art, the way we do education, the way we do government, the way we do everything. The gospel story as Christians informs our life and our worldview so that we see ourselves as participants in the work that God is doing. Let me invite the band to come up. This is a great quote from Keller's book that I want to share with you as I close. He says, Christians have been set free to enjoy working. No amens to that one, okay. Christians have been set free to enjoy working. If we begin to work as if we were serving the Lord, we will be freed from both overwork and underwork. Neither the prospect of money and acclaim or the lack of money and acclaim will be our controlling consideration. Work will be primarily a way to please God by doing His work in the world for God's name's sake. Let me say that last thing. Work will primarily be a way to please God by doing God's work in the world for the credit of God's name. 
to make God's name great. What do we need more than anything else right now, in my opinion? We need Christian bankers. We need gospel teachers. We need gospel bakers. We need social workers. We need educators. We need people who invest in our government, in our policies. We need people in every sphere of the world that we all live in coming oriented to the gospel story saying, how does the narrative of Jesus Christ and his life inform the way I go about doing this work? And not only the way I go about doing the work, but the way I go about treating the other people I come across when they're working. The people that you're going to experience in the retail field in the next few months. Some of you go shopping for this big holiday that's coming up, yes? What if we just all think, what is it like to be that person who's working in retail trying to help me find that gift for my great Aunt Melda? What would it be like to be a gospel person to her and just say, thank you. Thank you for the service that you provided me today. It really helped me. And Milda is going to be so happy. You have no idea how thrilled she'll be. There are very small things we can do. Think about where you're purchasing things. Think about who you're interacting with when you're going from place to place in your life. Think about the work you're going to wake up. How do you feel when you start work tomorrow? this afternoon, Tuesday, whenever you're working next. And ask the Lord to say, Lord, show me. Show me how it is that you are present and active and inviting me to be part of the gospel story. Let's pray together.